right, guys, we are back in our teaching in the book of Genesis. We are continuing in chapter 17. Last we were here, we were dealing in chapter 16, basically with the machinations. When I say machinations, that means how basically Sarah, through her own ingenuity, and her and Abraham in disbelief. And, and, and it was a momentary lack of faith. We'll see that throughout God's dealing with Abraham um, in certain places in his life until we get to chapter 22. But we're not there yet. But I was talking about chapter 16. So let's do our review where uh, the, the contrivings of Sarah to bring about the promised seed. Uh, in offering her servant, her slave, Hagar, the Egyptian slave that she had acquired in Egypt, to Abraham, Abram, as a wife, and so that she could conceive children, adopt them, adopt those children. They would become the children of Abraham, Abram, <laughs> as well as Sarah, uh, by virtue of this union of Hagar, and Abram. Okay. And so, but this was all contrived. This is what we understand spiritually. And now this is the theological idea guys, as a work of the flesh. You may have heard me say, uh, several times before I say it again, just in case you cannot achieve the work of God through the flesh. That is when God makes a promise to do something or when God has decided to do something, only God himself can, can do that. Only God himself can accomplish that. So therefore, there are, two, there are two things that are required, two basic things from us. That is faith, faith to believe in the promises of God. And two, we have to have patience to wait on the promise of God. We have to have patience. And so these two things were not evident in the lives of Sarah as well as Abram at this particular time. So what did they do? Sarah concocted this particular plan. Abram went along with this particular plan. And thus we have the birth of Ishmael, um, the son of Hagar and Abram. Okay. This was not the will of God. And therefore this son would not be the promised seed. Again, only God can accomplish his will, fulfill his own promises. We cannot do that. All right. And thank God, of course, there's no other way it could have been done. But nevertheless, I was saying personally, thank God, because these things pertain to salvation. And once again, here's that same principle at work again, that theological principle I was just telling you about. Salvation is the work of God alone. It cannot be accomplished through the flesh. Or in other words, salvation cannot be accomplished by what we do. It is only done by God. We see that in God and what God did. God himself, the plan of salvation, as early as Genesis 3 and 15, God, the working of salvation, that is the bringing in of that seed, namely we know Jesus, the Messiah, God himself offering himself, even Jesus, 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 giving himself, giving his life. You got it? Even the resurrection of the dead, life on the cross, resurrection. All of this is the plan and work of salvation. And once again, and who did all of these things? God alone. God alone. So therefore, that, that's why this principle is so important uh, with respect to 
Ishmael, that is, guys, the rejection of Ishmael. And that's what we're about to see in chapter 17. The rejection of Ishmael, the idea of the fulfilling of the promises of God. Sarah cannot do it. Abraham cannot do it. However, they are required to believe God for those promises. They are required to wait on God. But only God can do these things all by himself. Why? Because it pertains to salvation, the issue. And sometimes you hear me say principle. That means the issue, things related to the principle of salvation. And only God can do and accomplish these things. All right. So now with that uh, um, review of chapter 16, let us move into chapter 17 as we're going to deal with the signing of God's covenant relationship with Abram and the things that will take place. All right. So 17 and one. Oh, by the way, we remember that at the very end of chapter 16, at the birth of Ishmael, Abram was 86 years old. All right. So some passage of time will take place as we open 17 and one. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God almighty walk before me and be blameless. Let's keep reading and I'll return and we'll talk about it. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, probably should have stopped at verse number two, but let's just simply go back to verse number one. So now we see 13 years have passed. Then that's what we brought up. The last point, Abram was what? 86 years old at the birth of Ishmael, son of Abram and Hagar. So now he's 99 years old. And again, we have another theophany. Again, what is a theophany? Theophany is some sort of a manifestation of the presence of God. And here it seems that we have a personal appearance of God probably as a, as a human being. Okay. It doesn't really say, but most likely is it is as a human being. We saw that earlier, a theophany in the ratification of the covenant. Remember in Genesis chapter 15, when God appeared as a flame. And this is what, this is again, a sense of the Shekinah glory of God, the glory, God manifesting his glory. But nevertheless, without getting all of that, Simply, we have a theophany here again is a personal appearance of God. Sometimes, guys, I look at verses like this and I just absolutely marvel what a privilege it was to Abraham for God to make a personal appearance. These things we don't even have today. But nevertheless, and this is also to God, guys, an act of grace. Not of works. It's never, and you'll find that throughout all of the Bible, whether Old Covenant, Old Testament, or New Testament, all of these things are acts of grace. Why? None of us can really say we we merit, we earn, or we, we're worthy of these things. Who's worthy of God's presence in front of him in this way? But nevertheless, enough of that theophany. He appears to Abram 
time 99 years old. What does he say? And notice as God appears to Abraham, he refers to himself as El Shaddai. And that's literally what the Hebrew says here. Or as we say here, I am God almighty. And, and it makes sense that God should appear and with reference to himself as the almighty God. It makes a whole lot of sense because notice, we know what is about to happen. God is about to tell him that he is going to tell Abram. He is going to give him another son. Abram is 99 years old. He's going to be 100 years old. And we're going to find out later on in the text, Sarah is 90 years old. It is far beyond the time of women. In other words, Sarah can no longer have a child. So God shows himself. He calls himself by name Almighty God. And so how relevant it is to simply say that what is it that God cannot do? So I'm, I'm saying, Abram, even in the things that I'm about to say unto you, know one thing about me. I am almighty God. I can do all things. And that's sometimes important for us to remember that even in our own personal lives, that God can do all things. Now, God does not do all things according to our will. He does all things according to his will. And he exercises that power in doing his own will, not our will. Okay, so let's never get those two things confused. But nevertheless, so and then in response to the covenant, notice I said response, because as we said earlier, uh, giving back to Genesis chapter 15, when God walked through those pieces, if you haven't seen that, guys, you need to go and look and review that. What we were talking about here is an unconditional covenant. The covenant is still, as God is re reiterating this covenant, it is an unconditional covenant, or in the sense, it is a one-sided covenant. It is an agreement that God alone is making with Abram. It is a one-sided covenant, unconditional. That's what we mean by that, okay? But nevertheless, even Although it is an unconditional, let me say again, in this sense, loosely now, one-sided covenant, God wants Abraham to respond to his covenant. And the response is in faithful obedience. And notice I said faithful obedience, because in faithful obedience, you believe God. And in believing God, you obey God. So what does he say? Walk before me, verse number one. And be blameless. Now, this is that same Hebrew word tamim, and you'll find it often used in the book of Leviticus when it has reference to the sacrifices. And don't you think that is such a wonderfully fitting word that God speaks at this time to Abraham as the sacrifices had to be what? Blameless, perfect, without spot. And guess what? He says even to Abram, I want you to be before me blameless, perfect, without spot, a sacrifice worthy of God. So here he's basically speaking of his obedience, right? And with respect to, and as it relates in all of those things, what is God simply saying to him? Once again, that reiteration of the covenant, I will establish my covenant between me and you. And then he says, I will multiply you exceedingly. Now, here's where the covenant is even further advanced. God gives him further knowledge of that covenant. Because notice, we'll see in earlier times when God spoke of this covenant and how he would bless Abram, he usually, had, he usually spoke of about his seed, I will multiply 
your seed. But notice we see a more personal aspect with the covenant as God expands and makes known that covenant with Abraham. He said, I will multiply you exceedingly. So notice that the issue, now of course, it, the, the seed part is still there, his descendants. But the only thing I'm trying to simply say is this, the covenant becomes more personal as God directs it more so to Abram. I will multiply you exceedingly. And we know all of these things. Notice that is the personal relevance of the covenant directing it more so even at Abraham. Uh, I'm sorry, Abram, because Abraham is going to come up just in a few seconds. More so at him and putting the emphasis upon him. Uh, more so because of the things in chapter 17 that will relate to Abraham. I'm sorry. I'm sorry <laughs> to Abram personally. Okay. So we see that directedness in the covenant promise of God. And we also see verse number three, and let's just deal with it. We'll let's state it again, guys. And then we'll keep moving through the text. Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, Behold, my covenant is with you and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. I have made you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. But so let, let me and I will give you let's go ahead on. I will give you give to you. Let's keep going with what God is saying. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Okay, let's stop there because there's so much that God is saying to Abram that we need to deal with some of these issues thus far. So the response of Abram when God met him, when, when God appeared unto him and God began to speak the words of the covenant is worship. That's found in verse number three, when it says Abram fell on his face and then God continued to speak to Abram concerning the covenant. And so he tells him verse number four, same reiteration that the covenant is with him. And now he begins to tell him that he will be not only a father of a multitude of people, but notice a great number of people. His remember earlier, we say his descendants would be great. Look at the stars of the sky. Descendants would be great. Right. And talk about the seed of Abraham, of Abram. I'm sorry, guys. I'm always premature in saying that. But the seed of Abram. But now notice the expansiveness of the blessings of that covenant. You will be a father of a multitude of nations. So not just simply from one seed, from a seed, one single seed, but many nations shall now, God is telling Abram, will come forth from him. We can see that being fulfilled. Remember in Ishmael, God's going to later on talk about that 
in this very chapter. And the great number nations of people that shall come from Ishmael, we definitely will see it from Isaac, who is the promised son. We will see that great multitude of people, the Jewish people that will come from Isaac. And you'll even see as Isaac himself would have sons. And, and there will be an issue of promise. who will be the promised seed between whom? Jacob and Esau. But nevertheless, they are both Jacob and Esau. What? Son, Jacob and Esau, son of Isaac, son of Abram. So these are Abram's children itself. But notice, and uh, we'll see that it will be Jacob and those 12 sons. These will be the people of God. But also Esau, they, he will not be the chosen people of God, but they will become a great nation known as the Edomites. So the promise of God would be fulfilled. And even we'll see the descendants, the, the Ishmaelites, but never mind, never. Because <laughs> it goes on. But from Abram, there will be many nations of people that shall descend from him, okay? And that is the promise of God that he is speaking. And with respect to that, or should I even say because of that, now we go to the name change and I'll be finally free to say Abraham. And he tells him because of this exalted status that God himself has given him, he is also giving him a change of name from Abram, exalted father, to Abraham. And actually it's Avram or Avraham. But we say Abra Abram and Abraham. So now he goes through the name change. God gives him a new name, which simply means a father, as God literally says it, of multitude, right? And so he continued on, verse number six, talking about how he makes him exceedingly fruitful. That means as we just stated. So notice you see a constant reiteration. Do you get it? Do you get it? Do you get it? You will be a multitude of nations, even in so much that what will be kings will come forth from Abram. We see that in the princes of what? Ishmael. Later on, he's going to talk about that. We're not going to be premature in that. We see that in the great peoples that should come from the Edomites. And definitely when we look at the children of Israel, we see great, you see kings coming, the book of Kings, first and second king. We see all of this coming from Abram. That promise of God will be wonderfully fulfilled. And then he says, I'll establish my covenant between me and you, your descendants, after the after you and throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Now, and that simply is the covenant that God is making with Abram. Abraham, I can say it now, is a continuous covenant that lasts throughout the duration of the existence of the Jewish people on this earth. Now, Olam is a word that is used for forever. I don't want to get into a great discussion. Maybe I'll make a video about that. How to understand contextually when the Bible speaks of unto for, forever. We, we say forever or for generations. Okay. Maybe I'll one day make a video about that and just what God is trying to say. But not now. I'm, I'm struggling with that, guys. But all I'm trying to say is this. It simply means that this covenant that God is making, and you're going to see that because it's going to be the covenant of circumcision, basically will last for the duration of, the, of this earth. That's just the bottom line. As long as this earth shall last, this covenant with Abraham and his descendants is to remain in effect. So 
why did I, why was I making a big deal about this Olam, this verse? Because it also speaks in the in a similar terminology. I just tell you, since I since I got into here, I just tell you. A similar terminology with respect to the law of Moses about how it remains forever. But that just simply means up unto a time, up unto a particular time. Why did I say that? Because we know that the law of Moses, even for the Jewish people, first of all, it wasn't given to the Gentiles. So it never had anything to do with those of us who are not Jews. It's never given to us. So therefore, we were never under the law. But for those who were under the law, namely Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, you got it? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those of those who were under the law, the law was not forever. The law was up into an appointed time. So that's what that's the whole issue. And I'm, I'm not I'm gonna back up the tape. And probably have to apologize to you guys for opening that door that I cannot continue and, and investigate to your satisfaction. But we still we got to move on with Genesis chapter 17. But we have to be careful. That's all I'm trying to say is how we understand Olam or, or for uh, forever. Forever doesn't mean the way it means to us today. Forever meaning continuous on and on and on without end. That's not the meaning. So we have to always be able to get the contextual understanding of those words. Okay, guys, sorry about that. But what was I saying? He was saying that everlasting covenant to your descendants, right? To be God to you and your descendants after. So God is saying, and, and this is the sign of the covenant that I am your God. This is the sign of the covenant that God, that Yahweh, Yahweh, is the God of the Jewish people. He is the God of the descendants of Abraham. And this will going to be this sign of the covenant that we're going to talk about. That is circumcision. Okay, guys. All right. So that's what he's saying in verse number seven. And that's the idea that deals with, as we're going to talk about circumcision in the remaining of the text. All right. And that this circumcision is only to be for the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, only for them, not for us. Okay. And the duration, how long should the Jewish people, how should, should they continue to circumcise themselves? Yes. Even until this day, until the destruction of this world. Okay. And this world will be destroyed at the end of the millennial, at the end of the reign of Jesus Christ. And that's when we get into this whole thing in the book of revelation, uh, 21, 22, I saw what a new heavens and a new earth. All right. So, and at that time, no more circumcising. And one of the main reasons why ain't going to be no more circumcising, there'll be no more people born in the world at that time. There no person for, from what we understand of scripture, from what we understand of scripture, what is revealed in scripture, no human being will ever be born again. All human beings will be in immortal, eternal bodies forever. They'll never die. All right. So there's no need of circumcision. Those Jews who were once circumcised, I don't know what circumcision would be in the flesh at the regeneration. I don't know. And it's not for me to say. All right. But the whole point is at that time, no more circumcision. But all the way up, even until this time, the Jews, those who are born Jews. All right. Descendants of Abraham must, in accordance to this covenant, must, in accordance to this covenant, continue to circumcise their sons. All right. So that's the point. 
All right, I am very much premature, but let me get into verse number eight and see what we can work out of this. And I will give to you and to your descendants after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. Here's the promise of God to give Abraham the land, the land, notice it, the land of your sojournings. Abraham at this particular time does not own any of the land. It is a land given to the Jewish people by God and it's still theirs. Even whether they're on the land or not, the land is still theirs. If they're evicted from the land, it's still theirs because it's given to them by covenant agreement of God himself. The God who owns all the lands of the whole world and he can give it to whom? Whomsoever he wants to. He has given it by virtue of promise to the Jews, to the descendants of Abraham, right? And at this time, he says, it is the land of Abram's, what? His sojourning. He doesn't own it. He's not occupying that land at this particular time, right? Then he says, for what? An everlasting possession. That is, once again, that as long as this world exists, that land, the land of Israel, some people call it Palestine. I don't like that name, but nevertheless, some people call it that. But that land is theirs. And then he says, and I will be their God. The idea of the covenant here is he is the God of the people of Israel, God of that land. Right. But at the same time, there's a sense of prophetic word and, and I will be their God because we know, number one, the people. And I don't want to get into all of this, but I find myself wanting to go too far today. But the people of Israel have never truly occupied, possessed, when I said possessed, they don't get the idea of occupation in the same sense that the way people try to use it today in the sense of an illegal occupation. No, no, no. It's, this is illegal. This is legal given by God. Okay. The Israelites, the Jewish people have never really possessed all of the promised land. And the whole main reason for this is because of their disobedience. But by the time of the second coming of Jesus, we call it again, what? The millennial reign of Jesus Christ, millennial kingdom, second advent. All of that's the same thing, guys. But by the time of that, this is by the, this is what Jesus will do for them. He will allow all of these promises of God concerning the Jewish people, concerning the land, all the things that the prophets spoke about to finally be fulfilled. And so here, Notice there's a prophetic sense, and that's what I was trying to say, and I will be their God, because that's one of the things that the Jewish people never did do. They, they, they never did receive God simply as their God, as a people. They never were faithful in all of these things, and we see that clearly as we work our ways, way through the scripture. Faithful, they were not, but there will come a time when God, they will accept God as their God, and they will possess all of the land of promise as a permanent possession, never to be removed ever again. And there's a, that's what I mean by there's a prophetic nature to verse number eight. All right. But let's go on. God said further to Abraham. Now as for as for you, he is becoming to the sign of that covenant. Right. The, the sign of that covenant. As for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your descendants after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. What? What is the covenant? Every male among you shall be circumcised and you shall circumcise in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Let's keep going because we're going to work out another point here. Every male among you 
who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or one who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not from of your descendants, a servant who is born in your house or who is bought with money with your money shall be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. So now let's deal with it. So the sign of that. So God has already made the covenant. He made that covenant with Abram as early as what? Chapter 12, right? And then we saw the ratification of that covenant, verse 15, right? And now in chapter 17, we are seeing a sign of that covenant, a sign in the flesh of the descendants of Abraham. And all of this basically has to do with faith in the covenant, believing God, trusting God, okay? But nevertheless, nevertheless, this is the sign of the covenant that God gives Abraham and the sign of the covenant, Abrahamic covenant. Let me slow it down. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant is circumcision, not to be practiced by the church. All right. Not to be practiced by the church. And that is Gentiles within the church, but only to be practiced by Jews in every age, whether those, whether those Jews are in the church or not born a Jew, you circumcise, but let's talk about that covenant. So anyway, so God told him that that sign will be under for all males, um, only male, not female, because even today, circumcision is sometimes practiced uh, 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 by circumcising women, circumcising female children. Okay, but this is never a practice under the Jews. Only males are circumcised. And then there's another thing, guys, too. Circumcision was not new. Circumcision was practiced amongst other peoples in Abraham's day. Among, I think, the Edomites. Um, um, I'm sorry, Edomites. <laughs> but later on, they would. Okay? But among Egyptians. Among Egyptians. So, but there is the distinction. There is something about this particular covenant of circumcision that God has given for the Jewish people that distinguishes it amongst the circumcision that were practiced by other peoples in the world. Okay. Only thing I'm simply letting you see is this circumcision among the Jews is nothing unique. It was not unique at that time. It's not even unique today. Other people other than Jewish people, uh, Arabs today practice circumcision. But nevertheless, let's continue. All right. What makes it unique? What was he saying? You're circumcised in the force. And we understand what that means by the circumcision. Okay, guys, for, for me, and we understand that. So I don't have to get into that. Every male, verse number 12, this is why Jewish, this is what makes Jewish circumcision unique than any other circumcision. Every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised. And that is the uniqueness of Jewish circumcision. May once a baby is eight days old, he is then taken and circumcised. And also in accordance to custom and traditions of the Jews. And we do see that uh, in the time of uh, Jesus, we'll see that in the New Testament, they're also given a name at that particular time. But anyway, that's not in this text and we're not going to get into all of that. But the point that I'm making is Jewish circumcision takes place on the eighth day. All right. And then who shall be circumcised? That's also what God gets into in the remainder of verse number 12 and throughout. Not only Abraham's descendants would be circumcised, but all males in his house. I don't, and when, even if it's a slave, 
If it's a slave that's born in his house, he is commanded to be circumcised. If Abraham purchases a slave, that slave is to be circumcised. All males in the household of Abraham. The idea is the household of faith. Those who are believing God, trusting God to fulfill his promise. Okay. And Abraham as the leader of that house was responsible for this thing. All right. So let's go. Verse number 14, all right? Peradventure, there is failure on Abraham's part or any other male in Abraham's house to be circumcised, 14. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And that is when God said, uh, well, okay. Uncircumcised male, that, that's simply male who has not been circumcised. And we'll see that later on. And I don't want to get into it prematurely, but we'll see that later on as it happens with Moses failure to circumcise one of his own sons. OK, and we won't get into that until the time comes. But that's a, that's a great teaching, too. And the death comes to Moses because of his failure to keep the Abrahamic covenant. Death comes to him. And that's basically what we see in verse number 14 when it says, that uncircumcised male, what shall be cut off? And that is the idea God himself will bring about the death of that individual in judgment for failure to keep the Abrahamic covenant. Why? He has broken my covenant. Okay, so let's continue on as we move concerning what God has to say about Sarah. And we're going to bring this as one concise teaching of chapter 17. Then God said to Abraham, what? As for Sarai, and that proper pronunciation of her name, your wife, she shall not, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall, you, shall her name be. I will bless her and indeed give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Okay, so now we see God now begins to, uh, I almost use the term educate, to enlighten Abraham with respect to his wife, Sarah. You see, now here's the thing that you got to understand. Ever since Genesis chapter 16, at the birth of Ishmael, Abraham was thinking that Ishmael was the promised seed. Now comes the revelation directly from God. Remember what I told you earlier uh, concerning this whole thing of Genesis chapter 17? You cannot fulfill a promise. You cannot fulfill a promise by the work of the flesh. There's nothing you can do. God must do this thing. What happened with Hagar? All of this was a work of the flesh. It was man's Sarah as well as Abram's bright idea to bring about the, they brought in what they were doing, brought about the birth of Ishmael trying to fulfill the promise of God. You can't do that. That's the whole thing I was trying to tell you guys. Now God is revealing only he can do that. Only he will do that. And Ishmael, according to this is the disbelief of Abraham. Abraham actually thought Ishmael was the promised son. God is now letting him know Ishmael was never the promised son and will never be the promised son. It will be the son that God will bring about through Abraham and through Sarah and what God will bring about. This one will be the promised son. Okay, but enough of that. So let's go on. 
So now it's the introduction of Sarah, and he says now her name shall, and it's just a slight variation of a name, and he's simply calling her a princess. She is a princess. And why? Because just like he said from Abraham will come kings, and says Sarah is the mother who will be the mother of the promised son. So therefore, these kings will do what? Come forth from Sarah. And therefore, we have the change in the name of Sarah. And once now that God has made Abraham aware that it's Sarah who's to be the mother of the promised seed, now watch Abraham's response to this new revelation that is not Ishmael, but a son that in the future, verse 17, Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, will a child be born to a man 100, 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac and I will establish my covenant with him. That's very important. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Now let's look, let's go into that. So once he found out that it was to a son to be born by Sarah, what did he do? He fell on his face. This is an act of worship, but in the midst of his worshiping God for what God was revealing to him, he began to laugh once again in a sense, is showing a sense of, and I'm not being too critical. I don't want to be too critical, but it's a sense of unbelief because what did he do? He laughed. He said, what? And he laughed in his heart. And that's important too, guys, to see that. Later on, we're going to see again when God makes another visitation, Sarah herself is going to laugh to herself. That's the idea of laughing in heart. But the whole point is he's laughing in unbelief saying, he said, I'm 99 years old. By the time this would be, this would happen, Sarah had given me a son, I'd be 100 years old. And Sarah herself, right now, 89 years old. By the time she has a child, she'll be 90 years old. We way too old for this to happen. You got it? And so what does he do? Now, remember, he's not saying these things to God. He's thinking it in his heart. And so he begins to plead. Of course, he loves his son, Ishmael. He loves Ishmael, okay? Even though born with all of that mess by Hagar, it doesn't matter. It's still his son. And so he begins to uh, plead, if you'll let me use that term, guys. He begins to ask God for Ishmael. Is it, why, why can't Ishmael is it, live before you? Oh, I just wish Ishmael was the son of promise. Well, what about him? That's basically what he's saying. What about him? I kind of wish he was the son of promise, right? But notice what God does. God clearly contradicts any thoughts that he may have been having about Ishmael being the promised son. And what does it say? No, it's not Hagar. The, the, and, and, the, and we'll see that same thing being uh, talked about in the book of Galatians. I ain't going to get into that today. I ain't going to do that now. I always do that. Stop. So I'm stopping. It ain't the son of the flesh who will be the promised one, but it's the son by whom God will bring about through Sarah. And that's what he tells in verse number 19. No, Sarah, I don't care how old you think she is. She's the one that's going to bear you a son. And notice we see the omniscience of God, that principle of omniscience. Omniscience simply means God knows everything. Okay. God is aware of everything. Remember it said, Abraham laughed in his heart. God, he didn't do it outwardly. 
But nevertheless, God knew he was laughing in his heart. And this is why we see him given the name Yitzhak. It is the same identical Hebrew word. Yitzhak means to laugh. As Abraham Yitzhak in his heart, God says, and for that reason, that's going to be his name. <laughs> you will call him laughter. All right. So you would call his name Isaac and he makes it clear. And it is with this one, I will establish my covenant as an ever. So the Abrahamic covenant will be continued and established with this son. And that's why Isaac is called the son of promise. And again, you'll even see in Genesis 22, and we'll talk about all of that once we get there. Isaac is called the only son, the only son. And then notice he wasn't the only son. Ishmael was already born. Abraham had other sons, Genesis chapter 25, by his next wife, Keturah. Okay. I think about what, six sons, something like that. So Isaac was not his only son, but the reason why he's called this, because it is the legitimate proper name for the son of promise, the one to whom and through whom God has and will continue the covenant of Abraham. Okay. All right. So anyway, so verse number 20, as for Ishmael, I've heard you behold, I will bless him. I will make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. All right. So again, here's the beautiful thing about God. You know, the whole thing about Ishmael was a mess. The way he was born, not so much as Ishmael's problem, but how the, the machinations, remember what we talked about early in this, in this chapter, how Sarah contriving to, to fulfill the promise of God, how they're trying to make the, uh, fulfill, uh, uh, come together with a plan and bring about the birth of this child. And we know that all of the mess that it caused with, between Sarah and Hagar and Hagar ended up running away and all of that and Hagar's attitude with Sarah, it was a mess. That's all I'm trying to say. But notice the wonderful thing about God. Once again, he is so merciful. Ishmael should not have been conceived. He should not have been born. It was not the will of God for him to come born. But God yet permitted it. God yet permitted it. Okay. But nevertheless, God shows he demonstrates mercy to Abraham. Why? He talks about Ishmael. And notice there's a play to it. Remember, the word Ishmael's name literally means what? Heard of God. Notice in verse number 20, when God responds mercifully, that's what the point I'm trying to make here, responds mercifully to Abraham, he says, as far as Ishmael, I have heard you. See, see play Ishmael heard of God, God speaking to Abraham in mercy. I heard you. I heard you. And that's what he should have learned in the first place before. But anyway, I'm not going back to that. I have heard you. Okay. And what does he say? According to the heart of Abraham, I will bless him. I'll make our fruitless. I will make him fruitful, multiply him greatly. He'll be the father of 12 princes. So even again, we see what this idea of kings coming forth from Abraham, princes coming forth from the son of Abraham, namely Ishmael and God listening, hearing Abraham's request for him to bless his son Ishmael and God mercifully. So not only does God, he, 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 he rejects Ishmael. He rejects him with respect to the promise. He is not the promised son through whom God will fulfill 
his promises, the promise of Abraham, starting from Genesis chapter 12, okay? So Ishmael is rejected from that. But nevertheless, in mercy, God still blesses him to make him a fruitful, great nation of people. Princes come from him all because of Abraham, because of Abraham's request, and because he is Abraham's son, okay? And then finally, verse number 22, when he finished talking with him, God went up from him. And in other words, talking is now over. God departs Abraham. So now let's look at 23 through 27. We're going to finally wrap this thing up as we look at the obedience of Abraham. And that's basically all that's being said in those verses. It talks about Abram's obedience. Okay. So let's just read 23 through 27. Come back, sum it up, close it out. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, all the servants who were born in his house, all who were bought with his money, every male, every male among the men of Abraham's household and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day. Don't miss that. That same day, as soon as the conversation's over with, okay, as God has said to him, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was what? 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Again, reiteration, 25, 26. In the very same day, see this reiteration, Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael, his son, all the men of his household were born in, in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. So you see the reiteration. The, the reason why we have this reiteration is this. It is showing you, it is evidencing Abraham's obedience. And notice, in Abraham's obedience, it is a reflection of his faith. Okay, what is it? He, God told him, circumcise, right? This circumcision would be a sign of the covenant. A sign of the covenant, not that I'm keeping with Ishmael, that a sign of a covenant that I'm gonna keep with your son who is yet to be born at this same time next year, at the same time. So next year, he should be getting ready to rock a brand new baby boy. So listen, but, and remember, Abraham said, he'll be a hundred years old, cause even now is reiterating his age, 99 years old, okay? And Sarah will be 90 years old. But, 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 but nevertheless, that very day, what did Abraham do? He's circumcised because he is saying to God, I believe, I believe. So even though, what, what did we see earlier? Remember when he first fell on his face and he laughed and laughed in his heart and said, hey, I'm gonna be hundred years old. Nevertheless, he cast aside his doubt and he said in his heart, you know what, Lord, you said I'm going to have a child. You're going to give me a child at 100 years old. Sarah going to have one at 90 years old. I have one thing to say as he's circumcising himself at that age, circumcising Ishmael at 13, circumcising every male in his house. He is saying to God, what you promise, I believe, I believe. So circumcision becomes a sign of the covenant. All right, guys, thanks for joining me in that. And, and hang with me as we keep moving through because we're gonna find out as Abraham is 99 years old, God's gonna show up again. 
not long after this. <laughs> but anyway, guys, thanks for joining me, and see you next time. Have you subscribed yet? What are you waiting for? Subscribe now.